Alexis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I'm so sorry to hear that you're home with COVID right now. How are you feeling? I feel okay. It is a mild case. I have health insurance if anything goes wrong. So I weigh a privilege. I accept that I am quite fine. I spoke with Alexis McGill-Johnson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood, on a recent summer afternoon around the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's 2022 Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. She was at home with COVID, but she didn't have time for my sympathies. She's focused on how Planned Parenthood moves forward in a post-Roe America. McGill-Johnson took the helm of Planned Parenthood at a difficult time after rapid leadership changes and budget shortfalls caused by a Trump administration rule. Just a few years later, the Dobbs decision upended abortion rights in America. Throughout our interview, McGill Johnson refers to some recent challenges to abortion rights at the state level, including Senate Bill 8, a.k.a. SB 8. This is a Texas law passed in 2021, which bans abortion as soon as a heartbeat can be detected, at around six weeks, usually before someone even knows they're pregnant. And SB 8 takes things a step further, It gives regular citizens the power to sue anyone willing to help someone get an abortion. This was the canary in the coal mine for post-Roe America. It's state laws like these that have created the kind of environment Planned Parenthood currently operates under. Now, Planned Parenthood is waging political fights in multiple states at once, even as they continue to provide critical health care to those who need it most. And Alexis McGill-Johnson is at the helm of one of the largest and most influential reproductive rights groups in the country, at a time when those rights are under attack. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. We started our conversation by asking her about her family and their relationship to activism. My parents were really activists in the Black Power phase. I like to say I was born in 1972, which is like halfway between Black Power and second wave feminism. So we had a very strong understanding in our household of freedom, of rights, of justice, and the difference between all of those things. But I have to say the race lens, I think, was stronger than the gendered lens. My mom Mm. had a very strong, high-powered job, but She played into very traditional gender norms at home. It was to say, like, daddy used to always get the big piece of chicken, right? You know, it was like, yes, we are free. And yet we are free to fall into these same gender norms and rights. And then was this something that was sort of discussed in your family at all? How did you first become aware of reproductive justice as an issue? We didn't talk about reproductive justice as an issue. We talked about the ongoing struggle for Black liberation. We talked about the intersection of other communities that were experiencing marginalization based on race and ethnicity. We talked about fights to protect workers, but reproductive rights honestly was not a huge conversation. But again, it kind of lived in this backdrop where I was also watching powerful women in my family rise through corporate ranks, rise through movement ranks, and do unbelievable things, but they never put a strong gendered lens on it. And so for me, I think identifying as a womanist or a feminist came to me later. It came to me mm-hmm. college, you know, in, in grad school when I started to explore texts like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Zora Neale Hurston and Patricia Hill Collins, all of whom were on my bookshelves at home from my mom, but just never really the forefront of the conversation. So how did you get involved in advocacy and politics? Can you tell us a little bit about the path that took you to Planned Parenthood? 
Yeah. So look, I do think I was legitimately raised as an activist. My mom was a vice president at AT&T for many years by day. And at night, she was trying to figure out how to get new books in the community neighborhood center, how to get computers back then so that all the kids could get an advantage in learning tech. I went into academia right after college, after studying politics, because that was going to be the way I changed the world, to study and learn and understand how movements happen, how they get organized and the work that we needed to do. I ended up writing an article about the first generation to really grow up fully in hip hop and seeing the momentous commercial power that was driving so many of the sales of all things in culture, right? Not just records, but shoes and clothes and movies. And, you know, there was just something really powerful about how the industry existed and the infrastructure that the industry was built on. And I learned in talking to some of my friends in hip hop that one of the reasons that records drop on Tuesdays was because the Billboard ratings came out on Wednesday and they hmm. wanted a full week to oh, wow. climb to the top. And just the energy that went into marketing people to stand out on one day, I started conversations with friends like, what would it mean for us to mobilize this apparatus? for elections? How could we actually transform the way in which we engage in politics? And that just led me on a journey through the intersection of culture and politics with a full understanding of the deep need to engage young people and largely people of color as future demographics that would be driving change in this world. So you became president of Planned Parenthood at this pivotal moment in 2019. What was that like when you first took on this role? And how are you trying to change the organization? What's your mandate? So I came in in 2019 after having served on the board for almost a decade. I came in during a rocky leadership transition for the organization. And honestly, my mandate then as an interim president was just to get us through 2020. We knew that was going to be a pivotal election year for obvious reasons. And that the staff needed to feel strong and moved and people needed to be reassured that Planned Parenthood wasn't going anywhere, that we were as strong and going to stay the fighters and the warriors that we were. And I became a permanent president in 2020 because 2020 happened. Um, we hit COVID, we hit a race reckoning, we had an election, and then we had an insurrection. Then we had SB8, and then we had the Dobbs decision and another critical election. And Literally, I think this spring is the first time I've had the opportunity to reflect on what is next for the organization. The question of how does an organization that is over 100 years old meet the next moment, right? Right. You know, we were built to defend Roe. We were built to deliver access to all spectrums of sexual and reproductive health care in all states. And now that landscape is shifting. There's disruption in the healthcare side and there is political movement disruption. So the mandate now, as I see it, is to rebuild and restructure, to become more intersectional. Many of the same movements that we are allies with or a part of are also fighting the same people in the same states. Mm -hmm. So the more that we can do in building that infrastructure, the intersection is important. And on the healthcare side, being able to really make sure that we are doing everything we can to make sure that Planned Parenthood is the best place or among the best places for the people who have been 
living at the margins of healthcare, you know, Black folks, Latino folks, Indigenous communities, rural folks can get the access that they can, and we become one of the best places for them to do that. So really transforming our healthcare practice as well as our political practice, I see as the future of our work. So can you tell me about where you were when the Dobbs decision was handed down? What was that moment like for you? We were actually in our board meeting. Wow. And so what happened? Um, (laughs) We were in Washington, D.C. We still all had our bets that it would be the following week, right? That uh, it would be the very last decision, very last day, and the justices would skip town and not have to deal with any of the consequences. And, you know, at 10 a.m., we had our first meeting from 8 to 10. At 10 a.m., we put a pause in so that we could all doom scroll on our phones and look at SCOTUS block. (laughs) And I just remember sitting at the table, big conference room, and someone said, it's in. And then I heard like a sob. And then I read the words myself and I stood up. I literally fell into the arms of my board chair at the time. And Joe Salmanese and gave him a huge hug. And then I ran off to do media. And later that day, we put up a rally. We were in front of the court. And in that moment, you know, I think what it really did, Charlotte, was kind of put into context the kind of hope that we were still holding on to, if we were honest. Hmm. Even being able to say that we've known this was coming and we had scenario planned and built out an entire patient navigation system for that. Even after we saw the Supreme Court decline to intervene in the SBA case, even after we heard the oral arguments in the Dobbs decision, even after the leak That early draft of Justice Alito's opinion on the Dobbs case that was leaked to Politico last May, right? Right. Still holding on to that like one kernel of maybe it won't happen. And I think it just speaks to the hope that we try to hold on to, that our freedoms wouldn't have been taken away. That hope that even though you're in the midst of kind of preparing the logistics, It doesn't steal your heart for the shock and the outrage of what it really means when someone tells you you're not equal. Yeah. Obviously, the federal right to an abortion had been challenged for decades, and it was on very shaky ground in a lot of states already, even before the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision last year. So I'm curious, what had the preparation been like? How had Planned Parenthood been preparing for the potential end of Roe? Well, you're right. We've known for years that Roe was going to be overturned. You could see the writing on the wall, and certainly after Justice Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed. So we knew that, obviously, the political advantage that the opposition was building was going to be formidable. From a healthcare perspective, what you put at the center is the patient experience, right? What do they need, when, and how are they going to get it? You know, how are we going to move patients from Texas to Illinois in order to get access to care? What will they need on that journey? And that looked a lot like building a system of patient navigators, a way for someone to stay with you while you book your hotel room and make your appointment and figure out if you need childcare and get you on your way to get the care that you need. It meant helping those affiliates that were going to meet an influx of patients And it also meant thinking about the protections that we were going to need to see among our providers who were also thrown into chaos and confusion in this moment. 
Yeah. I want to ask about the political side of this also. I mean, there have been various moments in the past 15 years when Democrats held unified control of the House, Senate, and presidency. Why did they not codify Roe when they had the chance? I don't think they thought it was actually going to be a problem. Yeah. Like on the movement advocacy side, we were screaming that this threat is real. And it's a little bit like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Even though we knew for sure it was, it's hard to convince people when you've had a constitutional protection for almost 50 years. And so I think it never rose to the priorities. I mean, I, I also think you have to name the fact that Abortion, reproductive freedom, issues related to sexuality are incredibly stigmatized in our nation's discourse. It seems to come easy now because we can all name someone that we know has been affected by abortion or miscarriage or by one of these horrible restrictions and these laws post-obs. But, you know, back then, people weren't always telling their stories in ways that made those in power able to understand the urgency in the moment. So I don't think people were willing to spend their political capital on something that they didn't think was urgent or, quite frankly, that they knew how to talk about. And so can you help explain to our listeners politically in this new chapter, what is it that Planned Parenthood is doing? Are you suggesting legislation? Are you mobilizing volunteers? Are you lobbying political leaders? What is it that Planned Parenthood is doing to try to move the political ball forward in terms of protecting abortion rights? So, yes, the answer is yes. We are doing all the things. To all of those Uh, things. (laughs) To all of those things. (laughs) Okay. Um, Because the reality is, without a federal protection, we have to play at all levels, right? There are fights happening in each and every state. Every state has taken action in some way, whether they pushed proactive legislation. New York just passed a, a shield law protecting providers who are sending prescriptions of medication abortion into banned states. So every state is either expanding access or restricting access. On the federal level, there are vehicles that have been built over the last decade, vehicles like the Women's Health Protection Act, like the Each Woman's Act, that focus on what it means to actually codify the right, what it means to actually expand paying for access to abortion, what it means to really push the boundaries, particularly in this moment around what people need. And I think that our job is to advance at the federal level, that we are expanding access in states where we can, that we're litigating where we need to, to stop bad things from happening to people. And really looking with an eye towards the next 20 years, right? Like what would it mean to protect our bodily autonomy, our rights to be pregnant or not be pregnant, the ways in which we are building our freedoms and really grounding them in what true equality means, right? If we're honest, Roe was not about equality. It was about when does the state's rights interest come in around a period of gestation. It was around privacy of medical decisions, which I think is still resonant with people. And it was about burden, which clearly, you know, with people traveling 500 miles one way to get access to medication abortion, the burden is pretty extreme right now. But it wasn't about equality, right? Mm -hmm. I've talked to folks about what it has meant over this last year to have your constitutional rights, your very freedoms be taken away from you. To me, what it says is that you have just been told that you are not equal because you don't take away rights from your peers. Right. So how much of this fight is going to be in the states? It seems like now that the federal protection is gone, advocates are really battling on the state level for this. So I think 
the people who stand on the side of freedom and rights have long played a federal game. Mm-hmm. And I think that laser focus on federal elections obviously has meant a lot of resources have not gone into states, has not built the power that we need to fight everything from school board races to local sheriffs and DAs who are going to be enforcing bad abortion laws to state Supreme Court fights, which are now running in the tens of millions of dollars to win. And so I think that the balance of that right now means that we do have to get very strategic and thoughtful about how we spend our resources in states where we believe that we will be able to maximize and build and sustain power over time. I think prioritizing our fights for democracy and our fights for abortion access in a state like Georgia, in a state like North Carolina, in a state like Arizona become incredibly important. So, you know, it's hard to say this is a strategy that's going to sweep all 30 states, you know, um, because in fact, each one is going to be unique. But I think some of the tactics that we've built along the way matched with the public opinion that we know is on our side, 80% of all Americans and 60% of Republicans, right? So this is not a democratic issue. This is a bipartisan issue. This is a multi-generational issue, a multi-race, a multi-faith issue that people care about. And I think that we can't leave anybody on the sidelines right now. I'm really glad you mentioned that because data indicates that there was a sudden surge in voter registration after the Dobbs decision last year. And many people thought that abortion played a huge role in the 2022 midterms. So to that end, Arizona. Arizona is one of the most important swing states in 2024. And there are some analysts who say Trump can't win without Arizona. So what is the plan for that state? Why is there not yet a solid plan to put abortion on the ballot in that state and hopefully turn out a bunch of Democratic voters in 2024? First, I'd argue abortion was on the ballot in Arizona. I think it was talked about through all of the candidates. I certainly personally went to Arizona multiple times to campaign with the AG and the the governor in that race because we understood how important it was. And seeing the reality on the ground, the number of patients traveling to San Diego, we had 850% increase in one health center. And so I think the reality of what was happening on the ground spoke to it. So ballot initiative or not, it is still on the ballot. You know, I also think that we have to be realistic about understanding the complications of ballot initiatives, right? Mm -hmm. That they are expensive. They require time and energy to build coalition, to test and prove language, to raise resources and build an operation to collect the amount of signatures required to get something on the ballot and then educate the public around what the ballot means. So as we are laying out our maps, right, as we are deciding where to spend resources, there are a number of questions that go into that, as you can imagine. But I also think it's really important for people to understand that ballot initiatives, you know, are thrilled with the success we saw over the last year, but they are also not the end-all be-all to bringing back democracy. We had this great ballot initiative in Kansas, and we also saw them come back to the state Supreme Court and try to fight it, right? Right. So I think we're going to be in this tension between building out really robust ballot initiative strategies and making sure that we are not losing the opportunity to connect the salience of abortion votes and records to the actual lawmakers who are making decisions in those states. Because that's another place where I think we all want a ballot initiative, 
But we really need people to understand that their lawmakers are the ones who are making these bad decisions for them, and they need to hold them accountable. And that's, I think, a huge challenge that we have to grapple with. So um, Planned Parenthood just announced some layoffs in the national office to put more resource into state and local affiliates. What does that mean? How does that affect the strategy moving forward? Look, it's been a hard few months for us at the national office. We did say goodbye to some incredibly powerful, amazing, talented people who have been fighting for abortion rights. And I know we'll continue to find their place in the movement and do incredible things. Those layoffs were related to a restructure of the national office. Mm-hmm. You know, this was about, I think, as I said earlier, the need to rebuild the organization to meet a new moment. We are a federation, a national office and 49 very strong affiliates who are doing incredible work state by state. And our need to invest in infrastructure, whether that is electronic medical records to facilitate the experience of a patient going across state lines to um, building out the digital platforms for them to get information to the Black Health Equity Initiative that we launched last year to really build some rigor in our own work to make sure we're reducing bias and creating a seamless patient experience that will lead to better health outcomes. That's the kind of investment that we are making. It's not just putting money into affiliates. And these weren't related to resource constraints. This is about a conscious decision to spend our money differently, Mm -hmm. to build stronger affiliates because we know we will have harder fights in many of these states. And many of the patients in these states are going to be facing harder healthcare and political climates, and we need to be there to resource them. More with Alexis McGill Johnson about what's next for Planned Parenthood when we come back. So one thing that I think a lot of people have wondered since Dobbs is who's in charge of the reproductive rights movement? It has felt a little disjointed. And I know for very understandable reasons, the movement has to be operating on many states at once. Each state has a different political landscape. The anti-choice movement has had decades to get all their ducks in a row in order to defeat Roe. But now that we're in this post-Dobbs period— Who's in charge? Is Planned Parenthood leading the fight on this? Who is the leader of the fight to restore abortion rights nationwide? So I kind of would resist the question that there is actually a leader. I think the movement is incredibly full of strong and powerful leadership. And I'd also, you know, argue that a great deal of the leadership over the last few years is now being represented by many of the people who are most impacted. We are a much more diverse set of leaders that are standing in the space. Even the historically white-led organizations like Planned Parenthood are now being led by people of color. And I just think that that is also something really important to note because it's a different construct of leadership too. It's a way in which we value and sit in community and we have hard and messy conversations in community and build and fight to get stronger because we know that our fate is very much linked together. 
There are leaders of reproductive rights, health and justice organizations. There are federal organizations and state-led organizations and local community organizations. There are people who are literally part of networks that are helping people get access to abortion patient by patient. And then there are organizations that are holding the litigation across the board. Planned Parenthood is an organization that's frequently under threat, especially from right-wing extremists, you know, whether it's threats of violence like the firebombing in California recently or legal threats of defunding in South Carolina. What is that like for you? Do you feel like you're constantly on the defensive? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, take the case in Texas right now, right? There is a case trying to bankrupt Planned Parenthood to deny people access to health care based on fraudulent misinformation that is rampant through Texas. That's happening in the same court where the judge Kesmerick believed that he knew better than the FDA whether or not mifepristone was safe and effective. Yeah. So I think the threats are fast and furious. They continue to come. But also one in five people has been to a Planned Parenthood in their lifetime. They've gotten care. We have been with them at some of the most intimate times of their lives. And for that, we have become a very trusted messenger to help people cut through the noise around these attacks. And I think part of our strategy is to use these attacks to expose the desperate attacks that our opposition are really making not just on abortion access, but on democracy writ large, to expose what it means when you have a court system that's been captured, to expose what it means when you essentially are seeing a tyranny of the minority control state houses across these states that are enacting these bans, because we know they're not popular and they're completely out of sync with their constituents, but yet there seems to be no accountability. Part of what I think we can do as that trusted messenger is really help people understand and I think connect the dots. You know, the 2022 outcomes were a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, people were really expecting it to be a red wave election. People were expecting Republicans to take the Senate. I think the success of pro-choice candidates and defenders of abortion rights in the 2022 elections were a surprise to many people. So what was that moment like for you when you realized that this election had gone much differently than everybody expected, and it was probably because of abortion. Oh, no question it was because of abortion. Abortion saved democracy last year. And I, I will firmly stand behind that. I think Kansas was a surprise. I think Kansas was a surprise because that was the first statewide referendum, you know, post the Dobbs decision. They did everything they could to make it impossible to win, right? They put it on a Republican primary day. They just made it difficult to engage. And I think that decisive victory, which, by the way, you don't get unless you get bipartisan support and independent support, I think was a surprise for the opposition as much as it was for Planned Parenthood and reproductive freedom organizations. I think that the conversation around the midterms was in our bubble, it felt like we were winning, right? It felt like we were seeing the energy. We were having the conversations. We saw people show up and turn out. We couldn't keep the petitions on people's front stoops for the ballot initiatives. People were determined and angry and outraged, and they were showing up. I think that was more hype from the other side saying like, oh, no, people are going to care about the price of gasoline. Like, no, you know what? Actually, the price of gasoline matters when you have an extra amount to feed that you haven't been able to because you can't make a decision about your own body, right? Like people do not understand the range of 
decisions that people make related to accessing abortion. And they also don't understand how enraged people were that their private medical decisions were now being put in the hands of people, you know, like Ted Cruz. So I do think that people underestimated that rage. They underestimated our ability to hold multiple ideas at the same time, right? That we could both care about inflation and we could also care about our freedom and rights being taken away. And I think they will continue to underestimate how devastating the experience has been to live in a world where your government, your courts have told you that you are not free and equal. And that is what I think we will continue to see throughout 24. So we've talked a lot about some really big issues here today, but I want to ask you a few more questions about you and your life in our last segment, which is called The Last Time. Okay. Um, when's the last time you recommended a book to somebody? And what was it? Oh, my gosh. Um, I can't remember. Oh, I know. On Tyranny, the little small book about the rules of tyranny. We talk about tyranny a lot as we fight to save democracy and having a kind of understanding of that. I recommended it to all of my colleagues at the organization. When's the last time you took a vacation? Went to Costa Rica for spring break. It was amazing. Wow. When's the last time you followed a recipe? I baked the New York Times perfect chocolate chip cookie recently, and I highly recommend it. I would add extra chips and a little bit of vanilla, even though it doesn't call for it. Wow. Sounds really good. When's the last time you threw a party? My goodness. I am such a party thrower, and I have not had time to throw a party in a long time. I want to say probably my 50th birthday last August. And when's the last time you listened to your pump-up song? And what is it? (laughs) Every day on my run, (laughs) I listen to Somewhere Between Freedom by Beyonce or Break My Soul, also by Beyonce, in preparation for running and, you know, hopefully to grab her on her world tour. Great. Alexis, thank you so much. I really appreciate you making time for this. And please feel better soon. No, thank you. Take care. For more information on the work Planned Parenthood is doing, visit PlannedParenthood.org. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your thoughts or tips on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Bob Mallory. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our fact checker is Joseph Frischmuth. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.